Speaking podcast. This is Chris Shelton, the critical thinker at large, coming at you for another hour power here uh, on Spotify, uh, iHeartRadio, Google Play, uh, iTunes, and with video here on YouTube. Hey, everybody. Okay, so uh, this week we are going to talk about current events and Black Lives Matter and Evergreen State College and uh, some events that went on there that I believe are a, were a precursor to, you know, sort of pilot program, beta testing, whatever you want to call it, for what's going on now across the United States. And, you know, if you have the idea that all that's happening right now is an organic movement of people that suddenly sprung up and we're all about equal rights for everybody and what's the problem, you got a wrong view of what's happening right now. I'm sorry to tell you that. I'm sorry to say it so with such certainty, but there is more going on under the surface here, okay? And this podcast is an effort to try to talk about some of what's going on under the surface. And um, the reason that I am, am dedicating time on my channel as a critical thinker and ex-cult member to talk about this is because I see based on my education and background and experience, red flags going on right now, going up all over the United States. So, and they, those red flags have to do with something called critical race theory, which, or critical theory. And I've had Dr. James Lindsay on my show to discuss that in detail. You can please, please refer to those episodes uh, because they are important. It is a difficult topic to talk about. It's not easy. I can't meme this. I can't just throw up some images and some snarky comments and get across the level, the, the level of duplicity involved with some of this. So that's why podcasting is such a great platform. And that's why this week I've asked Benjamin Boyce onto my show. Hey, Benjamin. <laughs> hey, I was wondering if I was going to make it into the introduction. Yeah, no, I'm getting you there. I'm getting you there. I just got to, you know, you want to set things up and, and set the tone for all of it, you know, because because um, this is difficult and people are really, really ready to just like they're they're loaded, man. They got the, the, the shotgun pointed at you and, and they're ready to come out with the labels and just like dismiss everything you have to say out of hand because you're pushing back somehow. And pushing back doesn't mean that you or I are in favor of prejudicial behavior towards minorities or uh, uh, um, segregation or uh, pay gaps or let's beat on people because of their skin color. I'm, I'm not for any of that stuff. And I, and I know my, my viewers know that about me. And I want them to know that about you right out of the gates because this isn't about you know, the supremacy of the white person is an inherent organic natural thing. And why are these people being so uppity? That's, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about. We're talking about an under, you know, an underpinning to this movement that is a dangerous underpinning that has ideas that are not good ideas. Equal rights are good ideas. Getting laws straight so that cops aren't murdering people of color is a good idea. Reforming the police so they're not abusive toward any citizens is a good idea. Some of these ideas involved with critical race theory are not. So I asked Benjamin onto my channel today because he is a, was a student of Evergreen State College in Washington where this whole thing blew up 
and um, and he lived through it. And he put a channel together, and he's documented this, and it is amazing, infuriating, outraging, and uh, enlightening at the same time. So, um, so Benjamin, first off, why don't you, for my audience, now that I've described you and all of this, why don't you tell them what you're about? Well, uh, like you said, um, I, w- I want to frame it in terms of James Lindsay's work and uh, Mike Nina as well. They've been uh, guests on my channel. And uh, James Lindsay lays out, along with Helen Pluckrose and Peter Bogosian, a lot of the theory and the academic origins of these ideas that go under the name of capital T theory. What you see with Evergreen is practice. And my documentary was based on hours and hours of footage of student protesters who took over the campus, who shut down classrooms, who berated the administration, took people hostage, and just acted completely outrageously. And there's no way that I can do it justice by just talking about it. Like, the the way that they're acting is so over the top that you really, it's riveting stuff. And uh, so I put all of that footage together and married it with footage from the lectures, the seminars, the orientations that the Evergreen State College was using to teach these ideas to the students. Now, I don't know the whole correlation causation uh, metric of this, but I put the footage together in such a way that I think it's pretty... Uh, pretty plausible that there are a certain set of ideas that led to the collapse of this community of about 4,000 people that was taken over by about 200 maybe at most. But at the core of that is probably like 30 people really took over the campus and caused the disaster that is now uh, basically destroyed Evergreen at this point. Like their enrollment has tanked. And now that the COVID-19 has come through, like they're in really dire straits because it's it's become synonymous, not with social justice activism, but the worst possible version of social justice activism. So I, I started my channel because I was a student of Evergreen. I was there on the time and I saw one that the campus, you were not allowed to speak. Uh, I had professors tell me, like, I've never seen such a chilling effect on discourse. Like, you can't talk to anybody at this point. So I saw that I couldn't speak, nobody could speak on campus. And then I saw that everybody was talking about this footage on the internet. And I wanted to start to bridge the gap between what people saw and what was actually going on under the scenes. And so I put together a a long form, just kind of a rambly kind of draft of videos called Expose Evergreen. That's about 120 episodes of me just going through all these different facets. But I've distilled all of that down into a 24 episode series. And the, the episodes are between 20 minutes and 30 minutes each. There's probably a couple that are longer than that, but they're they're short bite-sized chunks that goes through and lays out chronologically what happened and then and then ideologically how the ideas stacked up and interrelated with the behaviors. Nice. And I'll tell you guys, um, if you haven't seen or heard of Benjamin's channel, please subscribe to it. Check it out. He puts this stuff together in the same way I've put a lot of stuff about Scientology together. You take a very difficult, you know, difficult to talk about, difficult to understand, you know, weighty set of ideas and and mechanisms and and methodologies and stuff. And you and how do you distill that down to a few memes? Well, you can't. You got to actually walk through it in order to understand it. 
you got to take a little bit of time. Not you, you, you don't have to spend days and weeks and months diving down this rabbit hole. He did a great job showing you in bite-sized videos exactly with their videos, with videos of students and other people who were there. I, most of that is what does the talking. It's not you being a talking head. Most of your stuff is just, here it is. And here's how it happened. And here's some little important bits of information because you'll find uh, one of the things that I loved about the way that you put it together was you could actually see what happened and then you could see how the students represented what happened. Yeah, exactly. When, they totally it, lied the whole time. <laughs> oh my God. I mean, it was a night and day distortion of what happened you know the police came and pushed us all around and made a raw arm there you know rah, 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 and i feel unsafe here and i was like having a real hard time listening to students talking about how unsafe they felt while they were sitting there talking to the president of the college while having pizza and he's acquiescing to their every demand yeah, like, they were dictating to him who to yeah. fire who to hire who's a good person who's a bad person and he's like oh i know free speech he apologized. The president actually apologized for free speech. Like, yeah, we kind of have to have free speech, but if right. they don't get our training, then we can get rid of them. That's right. And that's how they got rid of Brett Weinstein and his wife, Heather Heyer. Yeah. They hiring. Um, they got rid of them through uh, legal proceedings. Like the, there was a settlement, a tort claim. It, the, 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 there's layers to the story that are kind of like, you know, just storytelling of how this thing happened. But um, the core of it is that there's a set of ideas uh, that that basically are very, very identical to the ideas that I bet a lot of you, speaking to the audience here, will encounter. If you haven't already encountered, you're going to encounter it at your church, if you go to church, at your job, at any sort of institution, any sort of uh, large institution, or even your book clubs, we are all going to be reading this anti-racist doctrine by Robin DiAngelo and and Ibram X Kendi and those are those ideas are the the bedrock of the cultural revolution that happened at Evergreen and since this month actually so I, I spent like the last three years because the protest happened in 2017 this month has been interesting because I've been basically defending my dissertation. Uh, I, I put it all together I, I have a couple more episodes to put together I kind of lost. It's a lot of work, but I put it all together and now it's, it's happening in America at large. Now it used to be just little pockets like the community, uh, the quilting community went through this or, or some little business over here, some school over there. Now it's just going to rapidly pop up. And now I'm trying to get out the word and criticize this stuff and provide people ways of criticizing this stuff that's specifically designed to be uncriticizable. Right. And it's, and it's crafty stuff. And you see it uh, actually play out on social media because this is a, there's very circular logic going on. There's, there's, a, there's double binds contained within this material. So it, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of like you can't be right or you can't, come, you can't navigate through this without having to agree with every single part of this, of what is actually ultimately a racially dividing ideology, which sort of disguises itself as a movement for civil rights and social equality. They yeah. use equity. This, they can't even use the word equality. It's, it's changed to equity. And, this, and the wording and the language of this is super important. This is Orwellian level redefinition of terms and propaganda. This is not 
small, lightweight stuff. This has been decades in the making. Mm -hmm, They mm -hmm. have had every argument thrown at them and have figured out how to rework the argument in the same way Scientology could. You know, and and it's and it's if you get into that world, you you can't figure your way out of it because all the traps are laid to keep you in it and keep you, by the way, especially if you're a white person, but really pretty much anybody. You have to succumb to this. You have to give over to it. You have to give yourself to it. And Mm -hmm. that is where it becomes religious. Yeah. I would add that you you brought up race, and this is a racial discussion, but actually, if you look at what happens, and you don't see this often, but if you are a, what they call a person of color, or a black person, and you speak out against this, they will actually treat you worse than they treat the white person that that goes against this, right? You're worse than a racist, you're a race traitor in this stuff. So so it's, it's, yeah. And it's it's really dangerous stuff. And you see that playing out in high schoolers and college folk. They, they bring it to the absolute conclusion, right? Us adults can probably like kind of put up with the passive aggressive uh, brain fuckery and a certain amount of us will turn into zealots. Most of us will actually shrug it off. But when it when it becomes the modus operandi of a group of young people who don't have that perspective, they take it to the limit and they do much more damage. They, they do a lot of personal harm, right? They, they, go, they, they go after, we've seen them go after and ruin careers, but I think they're going to start ruining each other's lives and do a lot of exiling, which will lead to probably some very dire consequences for individuals who don't have the stomach to, to just be exiled for saying the wrong thing or not saying the right thing. Yeah, exactly. Um, the us versus them aspect of this is intense. Uh, Once you start really getting below the surface, which all of us can agree with, and I'm going to analogize that to Scientology, um, surface level looks great. It's all wonderful. It's all good, you know, but you get into it. It's not so great. There's um, because this started at college. I am interested in the um, the indoctrination versus education aspect of it, which Mm -hmm. experienced. And and let me. clarify just for you. I think I've said this before, but I look at indoctrination as a way of um, getting information across to somebody in such a way that they can't really question it. Now, whether that's with little kids who just simply don't have the ability to question or adults who are put under social pressure or job pressure, or, you know, if you don't accept this, you're going to lose your job. Well, now you have to accept it. Now you're put in a position where it's an, it's an either or. And when that is how information is imparted to you, I call that indoctrination because there's no power of choice involved in whether you can accept Mm. or receive or critically think about the information versus what I call education, which is where, no, there's conversations, there's debate, there's back and forth. There is, well, I don't totally understand that. Can you explain that in some other way? And then, you know, like you're really engaging with the material and, and, and diving deep into it. Um, but there's critical thinking involved. You're able to question it. That's my that's my yeah. point with education is there's a dividing line between feeding information to people and forcing them to take it versus feeding people information and inviting them to take part in it. Yeah. And I think that's where I draw the lines on that. So what 
I don't know. What do you think about that? Well, in the context of the Evergreen State College, like I said, by the end of it, like I didn't know what I could say. So my first few videos, I'm like I'm talking like and I'm apologizing a lot. I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not a racist. I'm just I'm just trying to work through this. stuff. I'm not a racist. I'm sorry. I'm not a racist. I'm sorry. I got so tired of that. Because it's just like, okay, even if it is true that I am this thing or not this thing, I can't control other people's judgment of me. I need to make content and I need to engage with this material. There's this element of being able to have wiggle room with the ideas, right? It's like... I, I don't advocate people questioning everything because that's exhausting. And you can question yourself into loop-de-loops and not actually get anything sure. done. Yeah, of course. of course. But if you're ever in an environment when you're not allowed to question, that's when your questions should be front and center. Like, why, right. why can't I say that? Why can't I say this? And a lot of the binds that they, that they do within this ideology and that they did with Evergreen was that it preys upon politeness and niceness. And uh, I kind of want to make a racial uh, 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 observation about middle-aged white women being really keen on their reputations being wrapped up with being nice and empathetic. And that's how it actually gets into you. It really exploits empathetic entities and, and, and niceness culture because it shows that you're actually mean. No matter how nice you are, you're mean, right? No matter how much of a good person you are, you're still a racist because you're not being anti-racist. But within the context of the Evergreen State College, they, they, I don't know if it's indoctrinate, but they kind of persuade you to this culture of inclusion, of acceptance, and they center the identity. And the identity markers are that which you pay heed to most of all. You don't misgender somebody. And whether, whatever your opinions on gender fluctuation and gender pronouns are, it's the mode in which they are implemented. The and, and I think Jordan Peterson was just trying to make the point. It's not the gender pronouns. It's the compelling of the gender pronouns. Right. That, that's one step to get me to, to just force feed me everything attached to them. And there's a lot attached to those things. There's a lot of assumptions. There's this really, the, the footage of the Evergreen State College protest has a lot of or just the whole college has a lot of unintended comedy to it, especially when some of the administrators are speaking because they're not like the sharpest tools in the shed. And there's this one moment in the orientation that would, the the beginning of the year that ended in like the collapse of civil discourse uh, where the, where, where Mimi Kantar or something like that, um, she says, I don't know if you've ever heard of pronouns, but we're going to show you how pronouns work. And then everybody just says their pronouns like, well, wait, wait. like, oh, OK, you mean pronouns work around here? Like, that's what you mean, how we use pronouns. But no, this is how pronouns work now. And, and I think like a lot of this stuff is really you just kind of rap with it and you know what not to say. So you can say all this nonsense stuff as long as you don't say those things that, that you're not supposed to say. And so you see a lot of people who aren't really good thinkers are really able to just be malleable with this stuff because it doesn't, it, it actually, it, it, it inspires or it requires the suspension of actual critical thinking of like, I have to get to a conclusion and then test the conclusion. You know, you have an environment of conformity, of compliance, of demand, and that's the that's the stuff that lights up my red flags, that lights up my red board of like, wrong, wrong, wrong. There's something wrong here. Mm. You know, mm -hmm. 
that's not the path to enlightenment. We are never going to have a free, open, tolerant, liberal society through, through cultic means, through extremist authoritarian measures. That's, that, that doesn't, that's not how these things work. There's you no can, checks. Well, yeah, because you can, you can have a society where everybody's on the same page. That's what North Korea looks like. You want so that? So far as we know. Well, as far as, you know, <laughs> when you look at every single person who goes in there and comes out, they're like, that place is weird, you know, because everybody must be. I mean, that's that's 19. That's as close to 1984 as we get. But that's um, that's <laughs> that's not the direction that my only point is not we're going to end up there. My point is that that's a direction you start heading in and you can have the best intentions you can have the most wonderful ideals, but you start forcing people into what they can say, what they can think, what they can feel. You start demanding that level of compliance out of people. There, the word we use to describe that is a cult. Well, see, the thing is, is that the, the, the professors didn't demand that. They set up the conditions for those demands to be made by the student protesters. There's this really interesting slide in authority where the authority figures, like the proper authority figures, set up the conditions for all of the authority to go into the protesters and to implement right now. We need equity now. We need this person fired right now. And there's little movements towards that. And it was interesting. This episode is actually, I wonder how it has aged now, but there was this, there's this point that I made about midway or towards the end of the series, uh, the, 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 the documentary, where I say something about if, if, if the truism holds that if you want to know who's in power, figure out who you can't criticize – Right? That that also happens with ideas as well. And there was a sacred idea on the Evergreen campus that was enforced. Like you cannot criticize this idea. And it was hashtag Black Lives Matter. If any poster went up that said all lives matter, it was removed immediately. There was some somebody put a poster up of crime statistics in the black community. And the vice president of student affairs went around and tore all of those flyers down immediately. Like, it just shows, now, whether or not, why would you not be able to even have that conversation? Why would those things be so offensive? It shows you that there is a totem, there's a sacred idea around which everybody is shepherd. And and then on top of that idea, which has good justifications at the beginning, or good arguments to say, no, it's not all lives matter, it's black lives matter until until black lives matter as much as all lives matter. You know, like there's there's all those arguments at the beginning, but it starts to reinforce itself and then it Trojan horses, all of these ideas like new equity center, more space in the dorms. I want my grades to be solved or I want this teacher to be put to pasture because they didn't say the right thing or said the wrong thing. All these other things start getting attached to that sacred idea. And, and that's the weird thing about this movement is that there is no Mao. There's the Cultural Revolution without the Mao. There's the, there's the Scientology without the L. Ron Hubbard. And you can go through and you can kind of assemble them, but it's built around hashtags. It's built around these ideas, and it's crowdsourced. I think it might be unique to this point in history with the Internet. I think it might be we're seeing the first kind of really crowdsourced cultural movement, and will that lead to a crowdsourced, you know, like, Reformation, uh, you know, a constitutional convention or, or something where we update our entire society 
in this new form that, that, that we're seeing play out in this? Well, yeah, I think what we're seeing is a, a sped up um, mm. execution or, or play out of what we've seen in the past many, many times. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I mean, the Maoist revolution, the Russian revolution, 1917, the, the, um, all the revolutions you go back in French revolution in history, American revolution, even American revolution was unique in that it actually set up something stable. Oh yeah. No, no, no. I, I, I I'm tracking on that. I'm okay. Yeah. What I'm trying to say is I'm talking about the beginning parts and I'm trying to oh, say okay. that, that what you just spoke to about hashtags yeah, that's an internet application of what used to be pamphleting and going door to door. And there was a lot more work involved for the people who wanted to rile up people. And so they had to go do that footwork and they had to go speak in the bars and speak in the inns and speak at the town corner and stuff. But that, so it took longer to generate mm -hmm. the level of social outrage that was required in order for something to happen. And now it happens so much faster that we go, God damn, where'd this come from? just came out of nowhere, you know, um, it, it's, it's a weakness of us that we are susceptible to that. And that's why cults can happen. And people don't just look at cult leaders and go, well, that guy's nuts. Cause he gets, there's a tipping point, right? Where you get enough people on board. And once enough people are on board, it becomes this viable. It becomes a, capable of a life of its own. Mm -hmm. And that's what we are seeing with this now where we saw the microcosm, now we have the macrocosm. So now we got to like, oh boy, we really got to talk about this now because now it's getting big. Mm -hmm. When it was small and manageable, we went, wow, that was kind of kooky. Boy, glad we, you know, kind of got through that. But when it happens nationwide, when everybody or a ton of people are getting on board with the beginning parts of it that make sense, are rational, are reasonable, because that's how you sell it. You sell it with the stuff that everybody's going to accept. And then... They buy into this set of ideas and then you feed them the next level of ideas. And then you feed mm. them the next level of ideas. It takes time to do this. Mm. So you have to use the memes and the hashtags to get them on board. And then everybody's buying Robin DiAngelo's book and, you know, and not everybody's going to understand it. In fact, most people probably won't, but they won't critically think about it either. So they won't reject it. They'll just go, oh, that's kind of complicated and above my pay grade and it'll sit on my bookshelf, but Black Lives Matter. Ah! And every time they see Robin D'Angelo or see Black Lives Matter, they go, whatever they're doing, it's good. And that's our weakness. That's how we have that codependent relationship with the cult leaders, but it's also how outside of a cult leader, you can still get that phenomena going. And I think that's hmm. what's happening right now with this. I don't know what, it, now I'm, I'm soapboxing. What do you, what do you... <laughs> Well, if, if you look at my, I'm in a strong position because I've been working on something that looks to be replicated at a national level. So I can, I can go through and I can look at the experiences that I've documented and that I've studied and then apply the lessons to the larger societal uh, Phenomena, just to describe it, but also ultimately to give people paths through that maze of critical theory or or through their uh, confessionals uh, program, like they're they're purging the whiteness, racism, uh, you know, hourly, uh, you know, shindig that that's going to replace church now. Um, and there's a multiple there's multiple ways of of dealing with what we're seeing. But first and foremost, I think 
I don't know if we said this or not. It's that you have to, you kind of have to say, okay, I, I do want to forward, I guess human rights is something that, that is safe enough to say, okay, I want human rights. You know, I think equality is a good thing. Actually, I want to interact with people freely and openly and create things with them. Like, that's a value that I hold. I went to a college where that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to build a bunch of products and be around people who wanted to do that, too. When that system came in, that destroyed my ability to do that thing. I, I it, it corroded my ability to plug into a community of creators because that community was not about creation. It was about justice. And that justice didn't really make sense to me in the context that they were trying to enact justice on themselves and even myself in the long run. But I, I but the weird thing is, is that a lot of a, a lot of the momentum of this stuff is going to implement this justice component to every institution. And I think people need to be aware of what that arm of your institution is going to be doing and how does it really operate and how does it think about itself and what can you do to not be, you know, grasped and molested by that arm because it, it will start to edit your behavior inside of your company, even even just on the level of, of your speech, but that goes to the level of your thought, and then that goes to the level of your potential speech and thought, too. Exactly. Exactly. And how many times do we need to learn this lesson, folks? <laughs> you know, Every three generations, are, maybe? I don't know. I, I, it certainly seems that way. Hey, everyone. Recently, I've been checking out the misinformation threat on the Great Courses Plus. It was so interesting to learn that Russia not only ran internet disinformation campaigns against us in the 2016 election, but that this practice has been a long-standing practice that they used in the Ukraine, too. Misinformation comes from lots of different places, though, and we can inadvertently forward this even if we have the best of intentions. It might seem far-fetched that a foreign adversary might be interested in sowing discontent and division in our country until you think about what a brilliant and modern strategy that is, since it only involves paying keyboard warriors to do their fighting, a lot cheaper and easier than using guns and weapons of mass destruction. This is just a small part of what you learn when you take advantage of the Great Courses Plus. This streaming service has an extensive course library across a huge number of topics, from cooking to finance to stress and so much more. You can even use the Great Courses Plus to supplement homeschooling. All of the content is objective and fact-based and easy to access anytime, anywhere. So don't wait any longer. Sign up for the Great Courses Plus today. I've arranged for my listeners to get a full month of unlimited access for free. To start your free month trial, sign up today using my special URL. Go to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. That's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash critical. Do it today. Yeah, so you hated kindergarten. That's interesting. <laughs> I, I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I, I, children are absolutely essential. 
uh, to my well-being, my mental well-being, being around that sort of plasticity of thought and that that imagination and that focus and that immediacy um, is absolutely essential for my own well-being. And interacting with that was very enriching, but it wasn't really making me established in the world, right? I needed to focus on my focus, which at that point was uh, literature. Now, when I checked out Evergreen, it was sold to me as a highly independent-oriented education. And in a nutshell, for the, for the most part, you don't take a number of classes. You take a program. The program's 16 credits long and lasts one semester, 10 weeks, or it's the entire year. It's one program, entire year. For example, probably the, the pinnacle of the Evergreen education at Evergreen that I received was my second year at Evergreen. I took a course called Dark Romantics, and it focused on uh, the, uh, the 19th century in France. And we studied philosophy, literature, uh, photography, art, and history, um, and a couple of other things. And there was different professors, like four or five or six of the language. We studied the language too. So it was fully immersive and all the teachers were from these various different disciplines and all of the, the it was all integrated. And then at the end of that, we went to France and we did a final project in France, right? So it was completely like, it was like this one course, which is a blessing and a curse. If you look at it from the view of what happened with regards to the protests, you have this year-long uh, tunnel vision course of critical race theory, and then at the very end of it, you produce the product, right? You actually, you do your final project, and it's a group project, and you all get together, and you, you balls to the wall, evergreen style, you take it to the, the utmost limit. So that mode of education where you are interacting with one professor, two professors, you have a core professor, right, where you do seminars with, leads to, if you get a really good teacher, a really good experience. If you get a mediocre teacher, it's really mediocre, but you can always just do extra work on top of that, which is what I did. I, I wrote a novel for every class that I was in. You know, I was like, okay, I'm studying this and I'm going to write a novel to marry what I want to do with what I do do, right? As a, as a, I, I thought of it as narrative arts, as, as the practice and the theory of fiction, right? Um, so I, I brought a lot to it because I had that perspective and I had that drive. But you put a lot of people who Evergreen over the course of time was having some problems with enrollment. So they decreased the expectations that they had for students where I think it was at 98 percent acceptance rate by the time that I got there. So you have a lot of people in a, a wide range of uh, interest in being there, of academic readiness and the college, even though it was accepting a lot of probably not college ready students wasn't actually doing the work of getting them up to speed. It wasn't really pouring a lot of attention into their writing skills, into their reading skills. What it did, what it privileged was their oppression skills. And I even, I tried to get a job at the writing center. And because even though I had written 
sorry to say this, but like about 20 novels in my lifetime, I'd spent like hours and hours and hours like practicing writing, even though I had all of this, uh, this expertise and I was pretty damn proficient with the page because I didn't sign up for anti-oppression, their, their entire anti-oppression teaching. Like that was the litmus test. They asked me, do you believe in anti-oppression work? And I'm like, I believe in the writing of good literature and I don't know how to focus on a page and focus on saving the world at the same time. Like, I, I, I think that if you gain the skills of clear communication, you can do whatever you want with them. But if you learn what those skills are for and you don't concentrate on the actual skills, like you're going to be really pathetic anti-oppression advocate. And that's what you see in a lot of the footage. A lot of the students don't have really developed communication skills, really developed critical thinking skills, really developed debating skills, but they do have the skill of believing in what they believe in. And that's what they, because that's what they've been taught. So uh, I don't know where we were going with that, but I just want to contextualize my experience of Evergreen and why we see what happened at Evergreen happen the way it did. Well, no, I, and, I, and I asked you about that because I was wondering why you went there. And how it promoted itself. And it seems to have promoted itself as the exact opposite of the experience that you had, especially near the end. Yeah, but it, the end. it seems like through the whole thing, if the freshman orientation on day one is, this is how we view the world and this is how we're going to educate you to view the world yeah. is through a racist lens or a racial lens. Then I, I would say I would broaden that to identity lens. It, uh, it was just about race, but it really LGBTQ stuff is really right. strong there. And it's just identity. Politics factory. Yeah. 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 That's not what colleges are for. That should be one part of your college yeah. education is learning that that exists. Here's the pros and cons of it. Yeah. As yeah. It, you know, through time and history and as it has manifested itself. And that would be a course that would be worthwhile. That would be something worth, you know, worth taking. But to put you into that frame of mind and then educate you as though everything you look at must be viewed through that lens and that lens only. You know, there's a word that I have for that. and It's called a cult. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's a, it's a it's a single ideology that drives a worldview through, you know, from which you derive all your narratives. Yeah. You know. And uh, and if you do not accept that this is true or if you push back against it or challenge it, then you are ostracized. You're not it's that nobody wants you questioning things. And that is the exact opposite of, I think, what most of us understand higher education to be about. So how long did it take you? I mean, did you did you go in there, go through that orientation on the first few days and start wondering what you'd gotten yourself into? Or did you were you just kind of rolling with it and it took a while before the red flag started showing up? Well, I, I started in the middle of the school year. Oh, um, you did? So oh, I, I wasn't there for orientation, but... Oh, okay. I know for a fact that the orientation became more ideological over the course of my time there. When I first arrived, it was pretty odd. I felt like I was stepping back to 1992, like a hyper-liberal college of 1992. A lot of political correctness that I thought was 
out of fashion. Little did I know that it's the biggest fashion of the day now, um, you know, with like posters everywhere about dismantling the patriarchy, you know, and I don't want to get into if you if you are a believer in the patriarchy, I don't want to argue with no, you're not, with I, you. I, I'm not a believer in the patriarchy. But okay, I'm, well, I'm talking to your audience either. I don't yeah, want to turn them yeah, off. But like just that kind of rhetoric, like like this is the narrative. This is what we believe. And, you know, going in there and seeing a lot of young people dealing with their identities as, you know, a 20 year old kid, young person will be playing around with their identity. Am I this kind of person? Am I that kind of person? And identity politic kind of concretizes these identities as something that are more stable than they actually are, right? Like you're, I'm a homosexual or I'm bisexual or I'm pansexual or I have this gender, that gender, or I'm this race or that race. Those, those are parts of us that have some amount of traction and stability, but, but the way that, that a young mind interacts with them kind of turns them into idols. Right. And I saw that from the students and I kind of shrugged that off. But the way that the college was teaching this stuff called privilege, that's what kind of sent my 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 you know like a little spidey sense like okay well, what do you mean by that like you're going to assign me privilege in the moment and then everybody else is going to assign privilege to everybody else in the moment and that's all going to start to distance you. it just felt it felt off but like i just kind of like would joke about it with the older students around me like i'd find the one or two free thinking or like thinking person to kind of mock this stuff because you know it's really rudimentary but as the once george bridges comes on the scene in 2015 and he declares that race and fixing the racial disparities in the world are the number one priority of our moment of our time, and then empowers these professors who already have really strong radical ideas to berate other professors for not having strong enough ideals, and then setting up these workshops, these lectures. And at these workshops and these lectures, nobody ever questions like there, there's no debate about this stuff it's just I, a bunch of people where, who agree I, well, that's what i wanted to ask you about is what's it like in these classrooms and these workshops because it doesn't sound like there's a free flow of ideas going on in them well the way it's framed i don't know if you saw the you probably saw the one uh, orientation where at the beginning everybody says their privileges like, if you start with, like, I am a white, hetero, cis man, Marxist political economist, how are you today? You know, like, that that frames the entire thing. So already out the gate, that is the accepted mode of interaction. And, and the gender pronoun thing, uh, we don't have to get into that, but that was just another way of enforcing speech upon people. And by the time I, by the time we got to my last year, we had to start every class saying our gender pronouns, which isn't... And and I don't want to get into an argument about the validity of not or, or the validity or the invalidity. I bring it up because of the sanctimoniousness with which we were submitted to this very quiet. Like you have to remember everybody's sacred little marker of identity, and, and the, the the attitude that that it reinforced of the identity is first and foremost, and ergo because of the oppression facilitates this this radiation of looking for offense, looking for reinforcement of this narrative and, and then stomping on people, always, always mocking white men, always every, every there was one identity they, 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 they made racism illegal except for one point. They, they made discrimination illegal across the board, except for one per one, one identity could shoulder all of that because that white man was strong enough to do that. 
in a way. The white man was powerful enough to shoulder all of our blame. And so he was mocked all the time in little ways and in big ways. How is it that you go through, how, how do you see this or, or this, this subject matter or this idea here? Um, let me see if I can word this properly. You have this assumed and maybe, maybe this is the fundamental assumption I'm making that is, that is false. You have this assumption that the goal of a Black Lives Matter movement or of racial diversity training and awareness and this sort of thing, gender identities, you know, whatever social you know, thing you're doing, you have this idea that this is being put forward in such a way that we will treat each other better. That we won't look to these identities as bases for discrimination or prejudice. That we won't, you know, that, that, that we don't want to, to have a world where people are, are castigated or prejudiced or, 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 you know, get second place in line or back of the bus or whatever because of who they are or what they are that they really can't even help. I mean, you know, when it comes to like something like skin color or something, there's nothing you can do about that. That's just, that's, that's the lottery, you know, that you hmm. want or lost, you know, being born into this mm -hmm. world. Mm -hmm. So there's this mm -hmm. assumption I've always had that the idea with all of this is to move the ball of progressive ideas down the road so that we are all in a place where we get that those are not valid reasons to discriminate against people, that those are not good reasons to hate on somebody, that they have nothing to do with who the person actually is and what they stand for and what they can do and what they bring to the table, that we're going to move all of that out of the way. So imagine my surprise when I'm watching in these videos teachers, you know, professors as well as students who mouth, who parrot what the teachers say, talk about how I am taking their identity away by not recognizing their identity, that all lives matter is an insult because it somehow deadens or disperses or you know, takes away from their identity. And it got me to realize in that, what appeared to me to be a, a, a fantastic moment of hypocrisy, that the end result of this can't be what I just laid out in my assumptions about what this was all about. It, that, it, that it's actually a runaway train in the exact opposite. <laughs> and so it was zero surprise to me to learn that segregation is something that, that is actually wanted now by certain aspects or certain elements of these movements. And I just go, what? Are we all taking a giant step 70 years backwards? Is that what we're really trying to do right now? And it appears to me that that is what's happening. Now, having said all that, am I, am I off the rails here? Well, it might be the case that the reason that they don't allow you to have a sense of humor is because then you would recognize the utter irony of what they're actually doing. <laughs> <laughs> so my assumptions are not off base. I, you know what? I, I have not seen these ideas act out in a way where they don't result in disaster. But now that everybody's forcing 
is being forced to accept these ideas. Maybe it will lead to the city on the hill. Maybe this will lead to utopia. Maybe confession is the way forward. Maybe bowing down and, and pushing people away and out of society who don't get on board this will actually lead to what they expect. I don't think it's going to happen for different reasons. Just because it basically comes down to my moral sensibilities, my moral intuitions about how I treat other human beings. I'll give you a little anecdote. So I go to the Evergreen State College. It blows up, just completely blows up all around me. You know, I get stuck in a struggle session where I'm yelled at and told to shut up and told to speak and then told to shut up again. And, you know, like just put through the ringer, like, like literally a struggle session that the professor in my freaking class empowered the students to do to other students. And if I could stop you for just a second, because I want to make sure that one, I know what you're talking about and two, that my audience does too. Um, Maybe this term is something, uh, is certainly something I've never heard before, a struggle oh, okay. session. You haven't heard of struggle sessions. I'm sorry, I okay. have. What is it? These are going to be, these are going to be everywhere. They were, uh, they were employed during the Chinese cultural revolution where this, where the students were empowered by Mao by means of, they had this little red book and Robin DiAngelo has written the little red book of our current cultural revolution, white fragility, <laughs> look into that or don't. But, um. What the students would do was they would take the person of authority, usually the teacher, and then mock them and, and shame them and, and put all of the weight of all of capitalism and all of the evils of the world onto that individual and then perform this ritual that sometimes would result in murder, but definitely result in the ruination of that person's life, right? Um, in some case, it wasn't always murder, but it, they were very, uh, they're very negative to their professors. And I show footage of that later on in the series and I set it side by side with how the, how this, how the people's body language is even acting during these, these movements It's the same right. exact stuff. So right. what my professor wanted us to do was to work through this ancestral trauma. And that was one of the things that Evergreen uh, began to put into the water that I saw over the course of those last two years that I was there was that it became more and more about the psychology and about the trauma and dealing with people's oppression and, and centering their needs. And when I was trying to work for the writing center, like one of the lessons that you learn is that correcting somebody's grammar is a form of white supremacy. Yeah, or using big words. You're you're stripping them of their ancestral <laughs> heritage, yeah. and and you're 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 killing their truth. You know, for what? For material gains? For a job? For a career? Is it really worth doing that? Like, well, why do we have a writing center then? It's just another another arm of the thought factory, right? So, so they recreated Maoist revolution struggle sessions in a classroom environment where you as a student were subjected to this by the other students. Yeah. 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 Um, I have, I, I recorded it. Uh, just, uh, just the audio, unfortunately, but you I have you were paying for that going to that college. Um, I, that, I, by that point I was just holding more and more in because it was just so ridiculous. Right. And, I was just like holding it in. But after that class, I wrote my teacher a very apologetic letter. 
was very polite because my grades depended on his evaluation, right? So you don't want to piss off the teacher that's going to give me. And his evaluation is going to be on top of my document. His evaluation would be the first thing that you would read if you wanted to know what I did at the Evergreen State College, right? Because that, that's the power that he held. So yeah. I was very like, I'm like, you know what? I don't feel comfortable with that. I don't think that that's the right way to do things. I would ask if you do, if, if you're going to do that again, I'm, I'm just not going to show up and I'll take the credit. I'll take the docking credit because I just, I can't be a part of that. I don't think that that is correct at all. The, the way that they're behaving. Yeah. So, so anyway, so I, I want to get what to, was his, what was his response to that? Sorry. Uh, he was very uh, dif differential. It's like, okay, I'll talk to the students about that. Yeah, they can go a little overboard. But if you listen to the, the audio, he was he was kind of getting them to go along. Right. Kind of a sadistic guy. Um, All right, fair enough. What did you want to talk about there? So, so there's an anecdote. So I was I, I was subject to this really intense racial uh, harassment. And it got to a point where if I saw a black student on the campus, I would walk the other way because I didn't want to be harassed. And I never thought that about people. I mean, I, you know, when I lived in Chicago, you know, and I'd be careful when I walked around at night, but it wasn't even, I, I got harassed, but just about any male around at night, I, you know, it wasn't about that. So I, I just want to put that in the context of, I didn't have that response towards individuals until after being subjected to that. I, I remember this one point where a, a black man walks around the corner and I'm like, oh, oh no, it's going to happen again. Right. Like that was my experience. So this is the anecdote. So I take off, I, I graduate, I don't go to the freaking ceremony, screw that shit. I go to visit with my family in Northern California. We get this, uh, this cabin, you know, for a family vacation. And my brother's got his new bride uh, from Brazil and they're gonna get married there, you know, and we have a little ceremony. And we're just hanging out. And two days after we're all hanging out, I look across the patio and I'm like, oh, she's black. Like, I, I totally forgot to even look at that. Like, I was just interacting with my new sister. Like, I had no concept of race. I was totally colorblind. And then, like, this cascade of, like, ironies hit me. It's like, oh, I was supposed to recognize that first and foremost. But she's out of the country, and she's a different culture. Like, but the 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 what that... What I'm trying to illustrate here is that I was so locked into this racial narrative where race signified so much that it... That in in their pursuit of of trying to refine that uh, that value of being colorblind, because to be colorblind is to rob somebody of their history, you know. So you're not supposed to be colorblind. In the move away from from colorblindness, they got us to the point. Everybody on Evergreen got us to the point where we could not see past race anymore. We couldn't see through race anymore. Race became the major way that we interacted with one another. Right. Which allowed all of that behavior because you can't criticize those people, you know, those okay. people, you can't criticize them. Wow. That's interesting. And of course, everything you just said would, of course, in the you know critical race theory playbook would just reinforce how white you are and how horrible you are and how racist you are. There, There's certain, you know, I, I want to bring this up. So we, we were talking about indoctrination. And once I got out of Evergreen and I began to speak about it, I began to experiment with criticizing it, right? And I know I've made some mistakes. And I know if somebody pours through my backlog, they'll see some things that I probably say that were rather insensitive. Because I was trying to, I was grappling towards 
figuring out how to critique this thing, how to criticize this thing, and how to find an alternative to it. And when you're in an environment that doesn't allow any criticism, you can't practice the criticism. And when you ramp up the power of the blowback for saying the wrong thing, like you can't go through the process of figuring out the right way to engage with it. They basically i they were i was presented with the choice of becoming their kind of radical or becoming another kind of radical and i didn't want to become the other kind of radical so i had to become that other kind of radical in the sense of as soon as you speak out against us we're going to call you a white supremacist alt-right bigot i'm like okay i will allow you to call me that but i'm not going to be that way i'm not going to be that way but I, I know you're going to call me that, and I'll, I'll prove to the world eventually that I'm not that way. So that's one of the that's one of the problems that a lot of people are going to be faced right now if they want to question this anti-racist doctrine. It's set up in such a way that to be against anti-racism makes you more racist than the anti-racist who already knows that they're racist. It's right. it's all it, it's it's built against you that you're going to have to take a heavy hit if you don't bow if you don't bend the knee. And that, and that actually is all part and parcel of the entire ideology. Because, you know, we have, prior to this ideology coming into play, prior to, you know, the, 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 the concepts of this stuff that I think most of us grew up with, or at least that, that my generation, you know, uh, in my area, in my, the way I grew up. Gen X. <laughs> yeah, uh, is... Um, that these labels mean things that are significant and important. That if you're like racism, racist, yes, yeah. if you're a racist, I mean, that's a clan member. That's a guy who burns crosses on people's lawns. That's a guy who, who lynches black people. That's a guy who, who hates on people for no other reason than for their skin color. Right. As, as uh, you know, as Daryl Davis, uh, hmm. the, the brilliant, you know, black activist who has has deconverted KKK members himself in conversation. Um, he collects KKK robes as a hobby. <laughs> um, the guy's amazing. He's amazing, right? But his most basic fundamental question dealing with these people, these racist, true racist, as I grew up understanding the term, is to ask them point blank, how is it you can hate me when you don't even know me? And that is a really, really important question. And for me, that has always been the defining question of, uh, you know, what is racism? What is bigotry? What is sexism? What is misogyny? It's an unthinking, un, you know, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with the real world. It has to do with I see everything through this lens of black and white world or women, men, and if women, it, all women are evil and all men are good, right? This, this kind of thing. That's the extremism with which I identified these words. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. not what these kids are being taught. There, what there's different levels of that. This? There, there's different levels of this. And, and my, my original critique that I my my thesis, when I first came out of the evergreen closet, my first thesis was that the professors, these academicians, had taken a sociological view of the world where you have, if you look at the identity groups, you'll see that some identity groups are ahead of other identity groups. And you'll see that the ones that are ahead got there because they didn't suffer the same things that the people that behind have suffered. Or they have directly 
aided and abetted the oppression of the people who are behind. Now, that is a valid way of looking at the data. Like, like if you go through the data, and one of my family members sent us a video where the, the guy just goes through the data of, like, this is the medium income of uh, the black people versus white people. Here's the ownership. If you just look at the material facts of existence on the level of the identity groups, you'll see major disparities, and you can tie them to a history of oppression, overt, or, co or covert. Now, that's the problem. What the Evergreen... Like, that's for the real reason, problem, you mean? That's the this actual is, this real, is, this real problem. Yeah, this is a problem, yep. and, and it has been over... We have made strides, and there's yep. more work to do. Yep. And, and we, we've changed laws, we've made big steps, but the repercussions of that haven't hashed themselves out. Yep. Now, what they do, this is the sleight of hand, and one, of sleight, one sleight of hand that they make is to say that everybody who's white is constantly oppressing and constantly participating in this idea that they are superior to other people of other races. And you can see that because they don't go out of their way to invite these people into their life where they talk about including these white people or the, these people of color. And what they end up doing, what ends up happening is that the identity is associated and they did this very, they did this, they literally did this in one of these training sessions where they put up all these different identity categories and then they asked the class or the, whoever they are, is there, who is the most privileged? What, which is the most privileged gender? Male. Which is the most privileged race? White. What is the most privileged economic status? What's the most privileged gender? What's the most privileged uh, uh, sexuality, right? And you end up with this formula that, that's very, very similar to what I, I would argue the Nazis did to the Jews to say who has the, who's on top, because that's who is keeping us behind. It's this, this identity group. So you take this data, you distill it into the identity, and then you assign every vector of that through intersectionality. Every vector of your identity is given a, a, a relative um, moral weight to it between privileged and oppressed. And what you're supposed to kind of do is recognize you're a privileged or recognize your oppression and work to make those things equal. So if I'm a man, I should put myself behind a woman. If I'm white, I should put myself behind the black person. And because in order to shift towards equality and towards fairness, all of our all of the whole world, what the problem with doing that is that it reduces the interaction between two individuals to this calculus of privilege and oppression so that no two individuals can actually ever connect with each other. You can only connect with people of your own identity group. And even then, you're just acting out a script that was passed on to you. So you, there's no authentic, real emergent phenomena. What that leads to is an incredible amount of stress in individuals who can no longer just relate to one another, they have to relate through this constant work between, there's just conflict and struggle in every interaction. There's always inequality in every interaction, and that leads to eventually a dissolution of the fabric of society. That, that absolutely kills the, the, the community in the end. So there's this, there's this kind of trickle-down effect of these high ideas kind of coming into interpersonal relationships where they don't actually belong. Well, and I was about to say that exactly that, because the interpersonal relation dynamics then become one of identity versus identity. And and yet yeah. I thought the whole struggle was to not do that. 
Well, it's no, it's no longer to not do that. And and the one of the mouthpieces of anti-racist education is very popular right now. You'll probably end up taking a workshop um, from him if you work at a company. Uh, like he's going to be in your face. You're going to have to read his book. It's called Anti-Racism or How to Be an Anti-Racist. And his name's Ibram X. Kendi. And he says outright that you can't you, there's no such thing as not being a racist. There's right. there's there's denial, right. or there's confession. So you, you're either an, a racist or an anti-racist. There's no such thing as a neutral ground here. Yeah, you either get into our cult, or we're going to persecute you. No, and and he even I posted some footage of him today on my channel about him saying, "Well, I don't think that you should cancel people, but if they don't really make their confession, if they don't really make up for that racist thing they did, then I'm not going to stop you from canceling them either." Well, how do you decide? How do you decide what's the actual absolute racist thing? And how do you? And this is the problem. And this is what happened in the Chinese Cultural Revolution: is that Mao taught that the capital that capitalism is evil. The students acted as though the capitalist is evil, right? So they're teaching us that whiteness is evil, but when the rubber hits the road, it actually, the human animal interacts with the other human animal as a concrete entity. And so what's happening now across high schools and colleges is all these kids are starting to say, did you post that Black Lives Matter thing? No, you didn't post that Black Lives Matter thing. Did you say that enough time? I don't really believe you. I think that you're really not on board with this. Therefore, we're all going to gang up on you. It's happening all over, really rapidly all over the place. It actually is. I It touched my Twitter account the other day. I, had, I mean, in a very small way, I had to block like four or five people. I mean, it really wasn't like I'm being attacked or I'm claiming victimhood here. But the fact that it's coming all the way to me, I'm a little content creator with a little, with a little Twitter channel, yeah. you know, with a little Twitter following. I think I got like, you know, I don't know, a couple thousand people. Um, a little tiny YouTube channel, you know, 36,000 subscribers. Not, not huge, right? Uh, and it's, and it's hitting me, you know, for, for speaking up about this and for, for retweeting right wing sources. Oh no. Yeah. yeah I, I, I'm a bad boy because I'm, I'm retweeting right wing <sighs> sources. Right. So yeah, I definitely get it. And of course I've been in Scientology, so I definitely get how all this works. I mean, none of yeah. this, none of what we're talking about is anything new or surprising or different for me. Um, I just the, the I just wish uh, people would understand that that that's true that I that I have my own lived experience of extremist mindsets and mm-hmm. I know where this goes and you keep and you correctly um, bring it back to uh, another example of how these techniques and methods and teaching ideologies were used and that was in the Maoist revolution and mm-hmm. everything we know about extremist mindsets and how cults operate comes out of the study <laughs> of that time. Plug that guy's so, book. What's it called again? Yeah. Let's repeat it on a national scale in the United <laughs> States on an issue that everybody can get on board with because nobody really likes the KKK except the fucking KKK. Mm-hmm. So we can all get on board that that's bad. And let's get away and let's get rid of it, right? We don't want cops murdering people, black, white, yellow, blue, whatever. We don't want dead people, dead innocent people at the hands of cops. Let's get on board with that. That sounds good. I'm okay with that. And that's the entrance gate. That's the same thing as Scientology saying, I can help you with a problem that you're having with your mom or your kids. 
and you go, that sounds good. Yeah. And you step in and suddenly you're in this whole world of critical race theory. And that's what I'm pushing back against. But I really need people to see yeah. that, 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 that the surface level stuff is the good stuff, just like in Scientology. That's the yes. stuff you want. You like it. It's, it makes sense. Yeah. That's not the part we're railing against. Yeah, yeah. That, you, have to, you have to constantly say that, constantly center. Yeah. And, and, and actually do the work for them. If they want to end racism, actually develop better anti-racist tools than they have. Or take the ones that are already developed and then go to town on them. Because they actually, if they're better ideas, people are going to actually feel more joy for them it's going to hit them on a more fuller human level like and it's not going to be as restraining and and this is what disturbs me about the rhetoric that comes out of this group is because all lives matter is now a swear word i mean what's going to happen if i start saying hey you know what's a really good idea the universal declaration of human rights now that's a document that everyone should be getting behind. There's whole countries that won't endorse that damn thing. But it was put forward as a solution at a national level mm. to at an international level to the to World War II. Eleanor Roosevelt put help, you know, get organized putting that whole thing together. And it is a clear-cut statement of the rights of every single human being, regardless of who you are or where you were born or anything about you. If you're human, those rights apply to you. Why don't we adopt that? Oh, no, that can't be because you're trying to, you know, divide and this and that and the other thing. Like it's already Mm -hmm. all set up in their rhetoric to kill any alternative solution. Ultimately, or how do you see it? There's going to be a number of, okay, so we have to think of the long game now. Like what's the ultimate outcome of this uh, the the energy the youthful energy is going to run itself out but actually i think that it's going to perpetuate for a while i was thinking that the you the youthful blah it was just going to be like evergreen it's going to be over with but because there's so many little camps of teens like indoctrinating each other they'll probably do that all summer long and probably do that into the fall and perform some struggle sessions against their racist high school teacher because the definition of racism is anything that sounds vaguely offensive to anybody of a non-white race. That's the, basically that's the problem with these ideas is that once they're universally adopted, it, it causes universal destruction. So not to give them, there's that level of things that will eventually run itself out. It'll run its course. What will be a bigger problem is the amount of corporate and municipal uh, energies and resources put into these offices of diversity, equity, and inclusion that will go through and force you and then revise or, or review your obedience to these ideas. And if you look at the, the founding document, um, you know, Robin D'Angelo and this Kindy guy, they really, really want basically reparations. They want equalization. So they'll talk about equity, not equality. Equality, is, it doesn't lead to fairness. Equity is the way to go. And equity means equalization. And it's basically Robin Hood 
on a bureaucratic level where you see, and it's not just resources, but they ultimately want resources, but they also want a moral authority too. So they want you to give your, your money and they want you to give your, your time, but they also want you to give your sense of, of sovereignty, importance, and like you need to seed your moral sovereignty to these people. And that's why... That's why that the that's why I find it disturbing that the washing of the feet and the kneeling has become really big right now. And it started as a sign of of solidarity uh, to point out a certain aspect of let's say when uh, when that football player took the knee, he was it was nominally about just bringing. Uh, attention to the way that black people are treated by police, right? But now it's no longer that. It now it actually means I'm bowing to the mob. I'm I'm ceding my authority to the mob, and that's what they want. That's a form of reparation that they want. It's a kind of soft cultural revolution. Hopefully, it'll stay soft. Yeah, but yeah, that's like a soft about. drink, it'll eat through a nail if you leave it in there long enough. That's you know? good. That's a good point. That's a good point because ideas, because here's the thing, you know, and I've, and I got a whole shirt about this. I mean, we have V for, you know, um, uh, God, what was that? Jesus. V for victory. V yeah. For vendetta. No, 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 v. vendetta. That's it. Yeah. V for vendetta. Um, I love that movie. I love that movie. That is a good movie. Right. Um, but the ideology Behind it makes sense. The you know the, the, there's an authoritarian 1984 like state uh, controlled media this kind of thing and here's a guy stepping up and and starting to blow some shit up to take it out and and incite people to step up and do something about it. Great, you know, against authoritarian regimes. That's exactly what we want. Is the United States an authoritarian regime? No, it's not. But it sure is being painted that way. Mm-hmm. You know, our systems actually work. Two cases went against Trump in the last couple of days. Uh, big cases, important cases, DACA, LGBT rights. These were, these were important for him. And he lost. He lost hard because our checks and balances don't work fast, but eventually they do work. And um, what's the thing about, uh, you know, the arc of justice or something is slow. But bends towards, yeah. You the know? arc of history bends towards justice. Yeah. Towards justice. That's right. That's, that's the statement, right? So, and I believe that. Um, because if you look at our history and you look at, you know, like, I, I don't know. I know this is uh, not good for some, in some people's eyes. But, you know, Steven Pinker's work. I mean, we, you know, you've got the factfulness body over in Europe who were working on the fact, trying, trying to show everybody the world's actually getting better. Oh, actually, this, this springs another question I wanted to ask you about to mind, which is this seems to be a very American-centric movement because it's mm. all about American slavery, American heritage, American history, mm-hmm. staring down mm-hmm. things, how America has, you know, created these, these things through, you know, through slavery. Um, this has gotten over into Britain. I know statues are coming down over there and there's been, you know, and they have their own checkered past with this. Mm-hmm. What do they have to say about, like, I don't know, places where whites are not in charge and never really have been? I mean, what about those places? Well, I, I think there's concentric circles of, of what this uh, activi- activism is about. And one major key component of this current unrest that we're watching has to do with this little-known virus called COVID-19. <laughs> and, really? What's that? 
Well, it was some invisible force in the world that that caused the governments, at least in uh, Europe and America, to lock up a lot of their populace. And yeah. we have been cooped up. And so what you're seeing in a way is the release of that pent up energy. And I thought it was just going to go back into the economy. Little did I know that when students don't have studies to study or where they're just locked inside all day on their Zoom machines, that they're going to want to go outside and, and get some shit out, you know? And so that's what they're doing. So there's that aspect of it where it's not really thinking that the mob just needs to expend some energy because it hasn't had any group activity. There hasn't been a release valve. I don't know about the narrative and how it spills out into other countries. I do know that there's a certain strain of the West that has been very critical of the West and has been trying to find ways to bring the West down. And every different Western culture has a weakness. Every single successful um, entity has something that they're guilty of or has done something wrong. And what you find in these different cultures is these same ideas being applied to the original sin of that country. America's original sin, um, I think, would probably be a high fructose corn syrup, but in I'm kidding. <laughs> According to the narrative, it, it is uh, racism or, or slavery, I guess. So that's why this narrative is very fecund and active around that, because it can exploit that guilt and that shame on the societal level and cause that upset. You know, it's interesting to me, the, the historical denialism that has to occur in order for this ideology to take hold. You have to ignore so much of history, just outright just either ignore it or just or start getting engaging in historical revisionism and say it never happened in the first place, which is even worse. Of slavery in the African continent, slavery on the Indian subpeninsula, slavery throughout Asia, slavery throughout Europe through the age. To call it what we did, you know, yes, a horrible, horrible thing. Don't get me wrong, man. You know I'm no fucking slave apologist. I, I am not about slavery anywhere, but to say America started it or America is the place where it was the, you know, the worst or something is, it's just not true. It has nothing to do with reality. I, I don't know. I, I, am I off base in, in bringing that up? I, I had a, I just published an interview with John Wood, who is, uh, I guess, only because it matters in this conversation. He's a black guy in, in California, and uh, he's in L.A., and he's, he's a really conservative person, and he's working on the Braver Angels Project, which is about uh, kind of couples counseling for Democrats and Republicans trying to get— these parties to have civic discourse, right? And he's wow, really Wow, that's, that's a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> so I had him on to talk about race and talk about the racial conversation to get his perspective, hoping that he would give us some tools. And he sat me down and he gave me a crash course on what it was like for black America, how they were stripped of their culture. They, they had a hard reboot under very difficult circumstances. And it's arguable that they're the only civilization or culture, let's say, that's had to do that in the modern time. Like black America were completely disenfranchised of their inherited knowledge. So they didn't have that inherited knowledge. So when, when black people come to from Jamaica here or from Kenya here, and they get way ahead of even white people and they 
they do, it's because they, they, they have th- their culture interacts with this culture in a completely different way. So and he sat down and he went that's, through that's a really good point. That's a really good Every advancement that was granted to the black community in America was also coupled with with some sort of drawback, with some sort of economic consequence. He talks about he gives this really um, beautiful or horrific summary of how the L.A. riots in 1992 happened, where you have this constant leap forward of the black community and then the suppression of their of their economic power because there's all these immigrants coming through and taking other jobs. A lot of manufacturing jobs go over to China. Then the drug trade comes in. Then the police reinforce the drug trade. So, so you just so, see. So you know that none of that was race was because there was some racist structure overseeing this and guide being a guiding hand. Or is that the, is that the idea? I'm, I'm just, I'm just, I'm trying to get to a place where if I can see the legitimate grievances and support the reformations that will help this generation to get a little further ahead than the last generation in my country, if I can do that and empower that, I will be taking away the power of the people who would use that to destroy us. Right. So that's that's what I that's what that's that's what I'm doing. So I do a lot of criticizing of the critical race theory. I do a lot of critic. I try not to criticize the protesters because they'll come after me eventually. I, I criticize the ideas that are wrong, and I try to supplement that with positive ideas. So I don't know how that would translate into going out of a cult by giving somebody something else. I don't know if that's one way of getting out of a cult, just trying to translate it into your area of expertise. If people uh, kind of swap it out with something else that's more healthy, you still need an ideology. You still need some sort of belief system. So the trick is to find the, the correct one to, to replace the bad one. Is yeah, that is that's that actually true? Four out of five people are going to need a substitute belief set or an ideology that is that is definitely true or they what will does that one fifth do all back the other nihilism? fifth might be that not nihilism but <laughs> i'm not a nihilist man <laughs> fruitful nihilism. i swear i am i swear um i just go with the data you know and mm-hmm. and science uh and the best of our of, of our research doesn't doesn't give me the ability to buy into wooey ideas and that's that's where i'm kind of stuck but there's a way to reconcile that but it's hard it's really hard and i get why most people aren't going to do that and they would rather substitute another ideology for it i I get that i'm not i'm not bashing that i'm not saying it's you know some horrible thing because it's just the human condition i can't do anything about that yeah but i I would i would i would question if uh, what you believe in isn't an ideology or why would you even not call it an ideology if it's if it can be codified then it can actually be shared like like liberal classical liberalism let's say like like if you codify that i think that that's still a replacement because you need that framework you need a, a a way of of framing and making sense of the world if you can just translated into the kind of similar terms as the the ideology or the religion that's operating in other people you can show it has extra features that this other thing doesn't have but it still has the same basic uh function of of giving you stability in an ever-changing world or something like that yeah no you're making a very good point i i have not come out of the situation i was in 
said all the things I've said about it, done all the research I've done about it to come to a place where I've got a better idea for everybody. I'm not that guy. I'm not trying to push that, right? I'm not trying to be anybody's guru or be anybody's ideologue or, or, or get on a pulpit for a position. Except this, human rights. If, if I have a position, if I have an agenda, if I have a world I want to see come out of all of this, it is, it is let's stop finding excuses to hate each other and let's figure out. I know, man. You call me a nihilist and then I say shit like that, right? So, uh, but, okay. You're but, a naive nihilist, so you're charming uh, <laughs> as you look into the abyss. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I, I'm on board with you. I'm just. I'm just saying. I'm just bringing some irony into the conversation by saying, okay, let's let's find a reason for people to stop hating each other. It's like, okay, I guess sports. Well, I, no. I mean, sure, sports definitely serve a function that way. Actually, except when they become Brazilian, you know, soccer riots or the UK, you know, and when things get absolutely batshit crazy. So. No, I think I think we need to be learning about ourselves. I think we have some very, very goofy ideas about who we are and what we're all about as human beings. And it's only very, very recently that we're even starting to look at, you know, neuroscience and psychology as an actual like science that could move forward with something versus yeah. nonsense that's been. So yeah, yeah, I know it's goofy, but I just, that's why I don't have a formal ideology around all of this. It's just, mm-hmm. hey, man, it's chaos. Be kind. You know, let's just get along. Like, you know, that I know it sounds weak. I know it sounds naive, but I'll tell I'm you, board, that, I agree. that idea is way better than critical, than anything critical race theory <laughs> has to offer. And there are people who've written whole books about that. My whole book would be a pamphlet saying it's chaos. Be kind. Yeah, you know, there was a you brought up earlier. There was a moment that that made me think of a moment when I was in a privilege workshop and I was supposed to confess my privileges and 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 bear my underprivileges. And I'm I'm just sitting there. I'm like, okay, I'm not going to do this because I know what you're going to do. You're just going to lecture me, and it's going to be a shitty lecture. And let me tell you what, I had 20 years of sermons. So I know, I know good, I know good preachers from bad preachers. And the moment you open your mouth, I know what I was getting, but like I would, but she goes on Rashida love. She's in the footage. Um, but she, she's not actually, she gets, she gets more hate than she deserves. She's just a proponent, proponent of this ideology, but she goes on this 20 minute lecture about privilege and she's talking about her shoes and how she confessed that she was going to Jamaica for her vacation to somebody who didn't have the money to go on a vacation this year and how that was insensitive of her. And I'm just like, if you wanted to teach people how to be charitable and kind and love one another, I mean, don't we have this whole Western tradition that's not dressed up in this newfangled, hateful ideology? Like, if you're just going to make it a Christian college, couldn't you just make it a Christian college and just call it like Black Jesus College or something like that? If you just want to do that, why not do that? Right. And, and it seems like it seems like one of my theories is, and this is uh, borne out better by Mike Nina and James Lindsay and John McWhorter, too, is that anti-racism is a religion. And mm-hmm. there's the same amount of sanctimoniousness. There's the confessions. It's, it's a hobbled satanic Catholicism with all the original sin and all of the regret 
and all of the guilt, but zero redemption. Absolutely right. no. But there's reparations, but no redemption. Right. right. So it's 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 there's satanic. No it's in factor. There's no grace. There's no transcendence. There's no grace. Right. Right. And, so and it's all horrible to... parts. <laughs> None of the good parts. No wonder we push back against it. Well, yeah, and and if you look at and this is my test, like where's your art? Where's your music? Where's the where's the fruits of your labor? If you're gonna if you're gonna show me that this is gonna replace my culture, what are you gonna bring with it? Like yeah. I want the whole deal. I want it all. And so maybe it will permutate out, and the toxicity will permutate out. But I was thinking, there's some seeds, and there's some good ideas, and it, you know, th they are right in saying that just pretending not to see race actually isn't the full picture. When you look at a human being as an individual, that that's where you start. But you also have to see them as an individual through time. And that individual is in time through all these other circumstances. And they have a different experience than you. And I, I don't know what, what to do with that knowledge. I wouldn't mess too much with the systems, but I would try to impart... See, we get into the, we get into the question. Well, what do you do with that knowledge? And then and then you go into evangel evangelicalism. There's some sort of like idea form that starts forming that is basically a religion where I need to go and reform your culture. I'll work on my culture and you work on yours, but we have to have some common values in place. And what are those values? Maybe maybe rights as you conceive of them are the, are the core values that if everybody agreed upon, that would do best for everybody. Well, that's exactly along the right lines. And I'll also contribute more now that I've had a couple seconds to think about what we were just talking about in terms of, you know, where, where, what systems or ideas do I have that are so much better? Um, I like our American system. I like the American experiment. And I'll tell you why I like it, because in its purity, hmm. it, it comes down to compromise. Hmm. This was brought so home to me. By Ken Burns, actually. This is where I learned this from. And it was a series of documentaries, including the Civil War documentary, the Congress documentary, the, the documentaries on the on the on where on how this country, you know, the struggles it went through, and where it broke down and how it broke down and what happened when it broke down, right? Congressmen beating each other with canes, bringing guns into the floor of the Congress to to attack one another because they could not compromise. They couldn't. They just couldn't get themselves to see that the other person had anything valid to say. North-South was the basic, op, you know, was the basic dichotomy at that time. And they got to a place where it just mm -hmm. came to a head, where they couldn't compromise anymore. And as soon as that happened, the Civil War broke out. And it was the single worst thing that's ever happened to this country as far as death and destruction and dying and wholesale slaughter and disease. It sucked. It sucked hard. And I, and I don't think anybody who has a clue what that was like hmm. wants to ever experience anything like that on this soil ever again. Which is why this, you know, people who start, you know, hashtagging civil war and stuff, just I just lose my shit over that because it's people who have no clue what they're talking about. Well, some of them actually do. <laughs> or or, or worse, they do. Okay, or worse, they do. So my point is that there is a system here that we've put in place that allows for and pushes toward and works the grease of our machinery, of our government machinery is compromised. Yeah. And 
in a country of 330 million people that we've grown to, of every culture on the planet, I mean, I wonder if there's any Australian Aborigines here, but other than that, I'm pretty sure we're, we're pretty well covered in the United States by this massive diversity of, of cultures and heritages and backgrounds. Whether they came here originally because they wanted to or not, we're, we're now where we're at. Yeah. And, hmm. uh, and we can definitely recognize the mistakes of the past. We must recognize the, states, the mistakes of the past because we don't want to repeat them. We want to learn from them. So yeah. how do we do that? We compromise. We say, you know what? This and this and this of what you're saying makes a lot of sense. And we can do something with this because yeah. this we can do and everybody's life will be better as a result of it. But when you demand special compensation, when you demand special rights, when you demand we've been persecuted and violated and, and murdered and all the things that have happened, which have been fucking awful. And you look at all that and you go, okay, well, now we're going to pendulum swing all the way over here. It's not a solution. It's just yeah. another problem disguised as a solution. And I yeah. think that we might possibly have gotten to a place now where maybe we can rise above the basic basal impulses of tribalism enough to recognize that tolerance and compromise are the actual solutions to just about every problem that's facing us right now. Yeah. 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 That's my soapbox speech on that. So, well, uh, so this is, uh, I, I'm, it might not be the case that your audience will be subjected to these trainings, but a lot of people are going to be subjected to these trainings and are already being subjected to these trainings. And in Seattle, they had the white people uh, go to special training the Seattle City Council, I believe, had the white uh, people. They, they called them out on names. And this is what happened at the Evergreen campus. Like, it, it's segregation all over again. Right. Um, and you're going to be subjected what, to what making this. Be ready for this. Yeah. What should be what should people be ready for when this happens at their office? You're going to be put into a position of, of confessing your racism, of uh, of accepting the fact that you're racist. And you're going to have to go along with this program and there might be tools out there. This is the problem. This is the problem. I have been one voice among a handful of voices, probably, you know, a few hundred or maybe a few thousand voices who have been speaking out against this for the last few years. But we didn't get to a place where we had the shiny pamphlet, the five steps of defeating anti-racism and actually making your workplace not racist at all, or of, of figuring out, understanding the racial disparities and moving towards a better uh, a better future. We don't have those resources. This this These anti-racist people, they have all the resources in place. They ha It's a checklist. And, and it, it's so streamlined that they can, within a month, have a position within your company that's paying somebody $160,000 a year to make these weird little rituals that you do once a year. It's all, the whole system's already in place. It's been tried out in the academy, and now it's moving into the corporate sector, and it's already been rolling out, and they've been trying it. So I don't know going forward what we're going to have to deal with, but I do know it's going to take a huge hit. It's going to take a huge toll on our economic power. It's going to be a big resource sink in our emotional lives, in our interpersonal lives, and ultimately in the end product of whatever we want to create. 
as YouTube content creators, we will be subject and we already have been subject and they've been toying with this and they will toy with it more of filters of selective filters that will squash us from being able to have different uh, conversations that go against this one narrative. The technology's not there. I might sound a little fear mongering, but I do think that we're on the precipice of a great uh, dark age, in a sense. If we do not reaffirm, find the values that you care most about, and if those are free speech, critical thinking, and, and human rights, then we need to come together and build materials somehow, and have conversations somehow, and, and just form a little speakeasy in your community of people who who won't drink that Kool-Aid, but will like kind of uh, save that liberalism, uh, you know, liqueur of, of open discourse of truth oriented, um, critical thinking, like we need to make alcoves and conclaves that 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 really just continue that tradition. And because if the pendulum swings too far the other way and Trump gets reelected and there's a huge uh, push towards, let's say, the red um, and, and the Republicans take that as a mandate to to really push a lot of things that they want, that will cause the blues, the, the cities to go even crazier than they are now. If Trump gets reelected, things will get even worse. Um, right. So we are we are on the precipice of some very troubling times. So I just I, I just really encourage people to, to go back to basic core values and, and, you know, build communities around those things. Yeah. Good point, man. And true. Uh, from according to everything I'm seeing and all the red flags I'm aware of, I mean, the confession thing, you read Lifton, you know, now, I mean, that's just straight up. It's just straight up reindoctrin, you know, reeducation indoctrination technique. Yeah. I was a sinner, but I have seen the light. I mean, this is as old as the hills. This is an old mechanism of controlling people. You guys, I mean, I'm, I'm serious. I really hope yeah. you guys are getting this and not just looking at a couple of white guys and thinking just a couple racists. You know, I really fucking hope you guys are getting this because everything I lived for 27 years mm -hmm. is being brought to bear right now to try yeah. to warn you guys that this is not have a happy ending if it keeps going the way it's going. You know, and I don't want to fear monger either. I hate fear mongering. I hate it. You know, we have to be awake though. Yeah, but we have to right now. Yeah, because because these are these are these societal upheaval moments of crisis and anxiety and and stress are when crazy things happen. You know, people were freaking out about Trump getting elected. Um. End of the world. I was. I freaked out. I went way overboard on it, you know, and I and I because I saw a narcissist and I know a narcissist when I see one and I know what I'm looking at and I know the behavior patterns and I knew we were going to have four years of disaster. And we pretty much have had four years of disaster. Certainly socially we have. Hmm. And um, politically, there's questionable points, but our, you know, our international relations scene right now is a disaster uh, because of this guy. And so I knew we were going to have problems. I, you know, okay, cool. I hope, I really, really hope that we're not going to be faced with the same level of disastrous results as uh, because of what's happening now. Yeah. But maybe it's one of those things of like COVID. You overreact in order to save mm -hmm. lives. Yeah. You know? yeah. Then you save the lives and everybody goes, ah, you overreacted. Eh, did we? <laughs> did we? Were we? Were we really overstating the case? You know, the, 
The now, jury hasn't actually come in on that whole little known virus called COVID-19 not yet. yet. <laughs> not yet. So we don't know, but I'm just saying, you know, I mean, Fauci is still like, dude, I ain't going to Tulsa. What are you talking about? Are you kind of crazy to do that? What? You know, I mean, he's, the Trump's not even talking to him anymore, but big surprise mm-hmm. there. I doubt they've had very many conversations in the first place. Anyway. Okay, man. Well, Thank you for taking the time to do this with me and, uh, and you know, just kind of sit up here and rave the red flags. And, you know, some people will see the red flags and go, ah, red is for racist. And other people might say, hey, maybe there's actually some valid point there to be made. You know, we're not helped by the fact that this is a difficult conversation. Oh, no, they, they take advantage of that. They really take advantage of the uncomfortable. And they even lean into that. If you're not uncomfortable, you're not doing the work. Literally, that's what Robin D'Angelo says. Right. Well, Robin D'Angelo is not a good person as far as I know. <laughs> <laughs> that's the nicest thing I have to say about her. So, um, and, I, and I've already broken down and deconstructed with you and James uh, yeah. you know, for incredibly stupid ideas. So uh, I'll add hominem her all day, but you know, uh, <laughs> I already know why her ideas are bad. We've already engaged with them. So yeah. uh, and there will be more of that on this channel because I can't, I, I can't just sit and watch this kind of thing go by. I want to do something. You, you should, know. you should, well, I'll send you the link to Kendi's Ted talk. It's horrendous. Oh, it's good. so bad. Excellent. You should deconstruct you. it. It's so awful. That's what I was just thinking about. Maybe I'll have to do something like that. Because I do approach this from the cultic angle, and I know what I'm talking about when it comes yeah. to maybe maybe you can call me out for not being a socialist or, or, or a sociologist or for being a psych, not, not being a psychologist. But when it comes to cults, yeah, you know, yeah, I, I, I got it nailed. And that is what's going on right now. So, all right. Anyway, thank you very much. And I'm sure we will be talking again.